Welcome, everyone. Here is the Carnegie Moscow Center English Language Podcast, and today we have a very special guest, the Asia editor of the Financial Times, Jamil Andrelini. Welcome, Jamil. Thank you. We are very happy to have you, and I think that we're gonna talk about the broader geopolitical dynamics in the Asia Pacific and the way developments in Europe uh, affect it, or the way events in Asia affect uh, the choices that European countries are making, including UK after Brexit. But first of all, I'm very tempted to ask you about the coronavirus because you come from the epicenter, right? not Wuhan, but from Hong Kong. Tell us all about it. Yeah, I think um, uh, it's bad. Um, obviously, uh, it's going to get worse because the spread of the virus is now um, is obviously you know happening around the world. You have quite a few cases of um, what they call hidden chain transmission. So it's unclear how these uh, many of these people actually contracted the virus. There's no clear epidemiology. You can't pinpoint this person caught it from this person. And that is uh, indicates that actually it's already spread quite widely in the communities in those places and uh, it's going to spread more. So uh, one hopeful sign is the fact that at least according to Chinese government official numbers, the rate of increase of cases outside of Hubei province seems to be tapering off. So the government, uh, the Chinese government is taking this as evidence that uh, that they're, they're quarantining of 60 million people, something never uh, attempted before in human history, it seems. Um, has worked to a certain extent to control the spread. However, there are some questions about the official numbers because there is a clear shortage of testing kits all over the all over the country uh, and all over the world. And so, whether the you know, drop off of numbers is because all the testing kits are being sent to Hubei or because really they have got it under control, it's un it's unclear at the moment. I think that when we look at the virus in Russia, like the first uh, thing that people are worried about is the disease itself and the potential for it to spread into Russia. But then the second tier consequences are really about the economy. China is the largest trading partner for Russia. Our trade volume has exceeded 110 billion. We mostly sell commodities. Uh, 70% of Russia's export to China is really oil and oil products. And we have seen a fall in consumption in China, like 20% consumption in January. So how serious the economic effect within China uh, do you expect and how much that will affect both the commodity markets and the demand for hydrocarbons, metals, and other commodities within China. Yeah, I mean, in the short term, obviously, it's going to be devastating because the Chinese economy, you so said Wuhan in particular, Hubei province, completely shut down, nothing really operating. Um, uh, then large parts of the rest of the country, Guangzhou, uh, you know, Shanghai, so these massive, massive cities, Beijing, they're, they're effectively shut down. And inter-provincial traffic and uh, and economic activity is is way, way down. So the question is really how long this lasts, because it's obvious there will be a big hit to the Chinese economy and, and to, you know, that will ripple through the world. China's the biggest economy in the world in purchasing power terms and the second biggest in market exchange rate terms after the United States. So, I mean, you know, it's, it's going to be enormous and it's by far the biggest consumer of um, a whole range of commodities uh, because it's such a manufacturing powerhouse. So, I mean, already you see these second, third order effects. Um, Hyundai is talking about having to shut down production in, uh, in Korea because uh, it can't get the parts to make the cars. Um, you know, there are all sorts of other uh, potential impacts. Um, it's going to be quite bad for Russia because uh, uh, China buys a lot of oil and um, 
it's not going to be buying as much. Um, the real question is how long it lasts and whether uh, it's all over by April, May, because you, you're likely to see, just after, as you see after a major natural disaster, you're likely to see what we call a V-shaped recovery, a big drop in economic activity and then uh, compensatory boost afterwards. The government will very, very, very likely stimulate the economy. Um, this in a way will give them an, an excuse to do that stimulus, which was getting harder and harder for the Chinese economy, for the Chinese government to do. So there's a good chance if it's all over by the summer, you get, uh, you know, first half of the year, a bit of a disaster, but a very strong rebound in the second half. And next year will look very good because from a very low base, you'll see a big spike in economic activity. So look, it, it just depends on whether they've got it under control, whether it starts to spread much more widely in China or around the world. And uh, if it, if it doesn't and it's all under control, then you could see uh, a very strong rebound and it might even make the Chinese government look good and strong and powerful and could be beneficial for the, ironically, at the moment it looks very worrying from a political perspective for the Communist Party, but you could see if the rebound is very very steep, Chinese government could come out of it looking stronger. Um, I've seen a, a group of Russian industrialists recently who produce microelectronics, and they also seem to be worried because bulk of what they produce and source out of China is produced in Hubei, which is the major hub for microelectronics production. So it has ripple effect over different parts of supply chain that is very hard to predict. But I think that the oil is really the major uh, driver of Russia's kind of concern about this. And when you think about the US China trade deal. I think that many senior officials I talk to say, well, we don't know how realistic the targets for purchases of hydrocarbons and ag products uh, and the commitments that the Chinese have given, how realistic they are in the first place. But then given the virus, probably China, if it is to meet its commitments, it will uh, rapidly scale down purchases from other sources and will buy predominantly from the US. Do, do you share that view? Yeah. So I think um, even before the coronavirus hit, there was a good chance that, uh, first of all, China was unlikely to meet its commitments to massively increase its uh, its purchases from the U US uh, in a whole range of areas. So there were most analysts saying they thought that they weren't going to meet that even before the virus hit. Now, um, the and, and even if uh, they were to sort of go some way to meeting those commitments, a large portion of uh, what they were buying from the United States would be marginal non-buying somewhere else. You see what I mean? So if you, they have to buy a whole lot of LNG, liquid natural, uh, natural gas from uh, from the United States, that would be gas they would not buy from Australia or, uh, or from Russia. So it was already going to cannibalize China's um, purchases elsewhere. And now in the situation with the virus, if China is even to sort of attempt to meet those commitments to the United States, then it will be even less marginal buying from uh, from other places. So I think it is, yeah, the, the combination of the US-China trade preliminary, you know, phase one deal combined with the virus is bad news for particularly commodity exporters. We think, frankly, uh, when it comes to uh, Australia, we've already had one quarter of contraction. We think it's very likely you'll have another quarter of contraction. That will be the first formal, you know, uh, official recession in Australia in 28 years. So Australia has managed for 28 years to uh, to grow, not have a recession, it's unbeaten record by, from basically any economy. And uh, we believe this virus could be the trigger that uh, ends that quite impressive run. Even if the phase one trade deal doesn't fall apart because of the virus and like China is making sufficient purchases that can satisfy Trump, like there are other aspects of 
bigger trade war and conflict between China and the U.S. What's your expectation? How's that going to play out for China in the next two or three years? Because it's definitely not only about tariffs and not about the imbalance in trade, but th- there is dissatisfaction in the U.S. with all of the Chinese trade and industrial policies, cyber theft, theft of intellectual property, and then the bigger notion that, hey, China is arriving as a peer competitor and it needs to be checked. Yeah, I mean, the phase one deal is really a uh, ceasefire, a sort of temporary truce in what what we think is a much broader, longer uh, clash between uh, these two political systems, really. Um, and uh, if you go to Washington, D.C., as you know very well, uh, there there is one topic uh, where you have total bipartisan um, uh, agreement. I'd say just one, and that's the need to do something about China. And the do something is uh, not always clear, but um, but uh, what is clear is that uh, you know that that there's a sort of bipartisan united um, united front, if you like, uh, in Washington D.C. between Republicans uh, and Democrats, the feeling that China has kind of gotten away with it for too long. If you see what I mean, has gotten gotten away with bad behavior, tricking and cheating uh, America for too long. Um, it's a terrible human rights violator in the eyes of the American politicians. Uh, it's the biggest thief of intellectual property. It uh, doesn't play fair when it comes to investment uh, and trade and tariffs. Um, it uh, you know subsidizes companies. It's, it's a more aggressive militarily. You can see there's just a sort of a range of topics. And the uh, critically, you have a major conflict over status of who's going to be the world's prim you know, preeminent technological superpower. So that is really, I think, a critical element of the relationship now. And I just can't see it getting better. It can, I think it can only, you know, in the foreseeable future, will we'll continue to be a difficult relationship and get worse. And, and technology uh, is really going to be where a lot of the battles are fought, if you like. When you talk to decision makers in DC and Western capitals and nation capitals, uh, does uh, the emerging alliance or quasi-alliance between Russia and China pop up in your discussions? Because you've written a very illuminating column last year uh, about the similarities with the big geopolitical triangle, Soviet Union, China, and the US, and the way that the Western intelligence community and analytical community was making a big mistake during the Cold War by being not able to assess the depth of Sino-Soviet rift. Now, this similar mistake is made, but in the opposite direction, that the U.S. is just very lazy and sloppy in assessing the growing rapport between Moscow and Beijing. Yeah, uh, so that's basically my argument is um, in the uh, late 50s, early 60s, the one of the sort of great um, intelligence failures of, of the West was uh, this, it was missing the... the uh, the, the Sino-Soviet split, the uh, the depth of sort of anger and animosity between the two sides. It wasn't really until uh, during the Cultural Revolution when you had uh, a full-blown border war and then the Americans were like, oh, they really do hate each other. And so um, that was quite a sort of revelation, but it came 10 years too late. And, you know, when you play through the, through the uh, you know, counterfactuals of what might have been, you might not have had um, – even the Vietnam War, you know, I mean, you think about if, if America had recognized early on that there was the split and it could maybe be friendly with China, you might not have had the Cultural Revolution, you might not have had the Vietnam War to the same extent. You, you could see if, if America had sort of 
understood the realities that you know history could have been very different. Um, and my argument is that uh, at least two years ago, I think when I wrote that column, at least at that point, um, I really felt that uh, the same thing, same mistake was happening in the opposite direction. That um, that the natural alliance that is forming between China and Russia is something that's being missed in the West. I think they're more aware of it now. It is, it is, back to your original question, people are talking about it a lot more um, in the US, maybe a little bit in, in Europe, but there's still some skepticism. It's interesting. There's still quite a lot of skepticism. There's the feeling that uh, for now, it's really an anti-American alliance in the sense that both countries feel kind of bullied by America. They feel put upon by America. And that's their sort of common ground. But but there's still a feeling that Russia always looks to the West and, and has, you know, since the days of Genghis Khan, has never really looked to the East and uh, and fears the East much more than it uh, it wants to be part of the West. It wants, you know, this is the feeling, at least in, in the US and in Europe, that Russia will always want to be part of a European civilization and not part of an Asian despotic civilization. But I will agree with you, and I can give you one very precise example in something in a field that's uh, dear to your heart as an editor, because I, I see that topic popping up in the Asia coverage of the FT very frequently, and that's the Huawei block versus Nokia Ericsson block. Uh, we see that this debate in Russia is increasingly tilting towards opting for Huawei because the discussion here is that, okay, one is a European, basically NATO system, like duopoly of two Western tech firms. The Russian security state believes that there might be backdoors to be exploited by the Western intelligence services. And Which they definitely are. As we can uh, go and ask Edward Snowden okay. <laughs> down the road. <laughs> okay, okay. Mm. This is on the record. Mm. <laughs> Terrific. So, uh, but also, I, I would believe they have it. Uh, but also what people are really afraid of, it's not only intelligence gathering, uh, but also the so-called killer switch. So the ability to push a button and then knock out 5G infrastructure in the city of Moscow when so much autonomous vehicles, medical devices will be dependent on 5G in order to stir economic trouble for Vladimir Putin. So the Russians go like, okay, both sides will spy on us using the back doors. Who but do you want to spy? Do you want who the do Americans to spy on you or do you want the Chinese? Exactly. Right, right. And, and then who, who is in introducing Russia. sanctions? Who is introducing yeah, yeah. sanctions? Who's the us? enemy today? Mm -hmm. Who's the enemy today? And who is ultimately seeking a regime change? And people mm -hmm. believe that it's the West. Yeah, the China Chinese doesn't look... Yeah. Really, for regime change in China, 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 yeah, China deals with who it deals with. Yeah, yeah. and it's, it believes that Vladimir Putin mm -hmm. is actually pretty beneficial for for yeah. China because it's this isn't just the debate in Russia. I've talked to um, this is a while ago, but I talked to uh, the heads of uh, major uh, telecom companies in Europe. I won't say which country because uh, it was off the record, but um, uh, they said the same thing. And frankly, they were like, you know what? We hate being uh, spied on by by the Americans. I, I'd rather be spied on by the Chinese. This was the head of a major telecommunication wow. company. Um, of course, the fact that Huawei is so much cheaper was really one of his most, I'd say, was one of his main motivating factors. But he said, look, the Americans have spied on us and it's, and it's terrible, you know, and the Chinese, you know, they're going to do it. Well, that's, you know, fine. What, they're, they're not using, you know, they're not doing it to uh, push things on us that we don't want. But where I, I think that traveling across Asia, my feeling is that increasing number of countries don't want to be choosing sides. Like there is this Singapore notion, uh, the prime minister recently came up with this notion of grass that the two big uh, elephants are fighting on and that they should be consider the overall environment. So there is this reluctance to choose sides and uh, 
strategic uh, decision to hedge different bets. Uh, what about Europe and how do you feel it in Asia as well? Yeah, I mean, across the world, there's a feeling that, that countries feel they're being kind of pushed to choose to take sides. Are you with us or against us? It's being asked by both the United States and China, I think, uh, and that's a new development, the fact that China is actually pushing people to, to choose sides. And Huawei really comes down as the, as the kind of critical deciding factor at this stage. Um, uh, I've said, uh, um, you know, that, that I see in this kind of clash of ideologies, clash of, you know, don't call it clash of civilizations, but, you know, you've got these um, between, you know, this, this new Cold War, if you like, between the United States and China, that um, one way we'll be able to sort of tell which country falls on which side will be whether or not they, they go with Huawei for their critical infrastructure. So I've described it as this Huawei block that you'll be able to see uh, if a country's decided to sort of throw its chips in with um with China, then they will allow Huawei into kind of, you know, basically build their 5G networks. And if they are siding with America, then then they will not allow Huawei really to, to get a major share of their markets. Um, you've got to remember Samsung actually is an interesting uh, player in this because do, does Samsung allow the US to use its networks to spy? It's not clear, actually. I mean, Ericsson and, and Nokia, I think, are much more likely to allow NATO, you know, Western intelligence to, to use... Um, uh, to use its equipment um, for some of that stuff. Uh, but Samsung's a bit different. So Samsung might be a big winner, actually, in all of this because it falls sort of neither on the Chinese side nor the, uh, the American side. Um, when it comes to Europe, you can see that countries really don't want to choose. Countries like the UK, uh, other countries, you know, Angela Merkel has sort of tied herself in knots. She's got, um, in, in Germany, you've got some, you know, opposition politicians you know, clamoring for Germany to officially block Huawei from its uh, from its telecommunications network. So that, and that really has momentum in inside Germany. And Angela Merkel resisting furiously uh, at least a declaration that um, that Germany is going to lock Huawei out. And the reason for that is because China has the ambassador, Chinese ambassador in Berlin, has explicitly said, "You lock out Huawei, we'll stop you selling cars in in China in the single biggest car market in the world." So. Uh, you know, being very quite explicit about the um, economic consequences for Germany, which relies enormously on China for for you know all of its big Mittelstand, all the big all the big uh, companies in uh, you know producers in Germany rely very very heavily on on China. So you can see that these you know Germany, UK, even you know, France, uh, not to talk of Italy and Spain and Portugal, which are you know I mean Portugal looks like a vassal state these days when it comes to China. It's so reliant on Chinese investment, um, Chinese trade. Uh, but for the bigger countries, they're really trying not to choose. They don't want to be forced to choose between America or China. I know that you're not British, but I'm, since you're working for the FT, I'm tempted to ask what kind of impact Brexit might have on this debate in, uh, in the UK. Because there is an expectation that since they move away from a common European policy, they will be more uh, sovereign, they will take back the authority, and that will probably help to improve the relationship with Beijing. Yeah, I don't think many people actually, when you get down to it and you you uh, look into it, I don't think many people believe Britain's going to have more uh, say in the global affairs or have more uh, sovereign capacity to, to, you know, get its way. Uh, it just walked itself off the chessboard in a way, according, you know, as I'm quoting one of my colleagues, but, you know, Britain in, with Brexit just w walked itself off the chessboard, really. Um, it's uh, now... Its negotiating position when it comes to things like a free trade agreement with China is so much weakened 
infant, you know, much, much weaker than it was when it was part of the European Union. Um, and I think people in Britain are deluding themselves when they believe that, oh, now we're going to get a trade deal with China and India. Those are two countries where every schoolchild uh, can name the dates of every humiliating act of colonial imperialist uh, aggression and oppression by the British. Uh, you know, the British don't study the Bengal famine or uh, or the you know the mutiny. Uh, or the Opium Wars. Nobody in Britain studies this stuff, but every kid in China can recite the dates of every, uh, you know, humiliation um, imposed on China by the British. It's it's part of the kind of founding myth of both China and India. Like the evil British imperialist drug dealers did these terrible things to us. It's it's like the nation is founded on on you know anti-colonial, anti-British uh, themes and and you know memes. Um, the idea that uh, Britain's going to now waltz in and everyone's going to like you know cheer them on and uh, give them free trade deals and give them an easy time, I just you know like go to Delhi, go to Bombay, go to Beijing and ask people uh, how willing these countries and these governments are to give Britain like nice free trade agreements, and they will laugh in your face. And the British, I think, partly because they don't study their own history in these <laughs> in these parts of the world. Um, are deluded about this. I think it's very interesting uh, just how screwed the UK will be when it comes to um, trying to negotiate its own deals. Well, I think that Moscow, as it pivots to Asia and China and tries to throw its lot with the uh, Asia-Pacific prosperity, needs to brace up for much more fires, competition, much more unpredictability beyond the immediate effect of coronavirus and events like that. I think that the landscape that you described is very unstable and uh, full of different risks. Uh, well, Jamil, thank you so much for being with us and enjoy Moscow. Thank you very much.